We see in our scripture text today this theme that is very uh, recurrent throughout each one of light. Light in darkness. The just man is a, a light in the darkness. Uh, in our gospel acclamation, Christ is saying, I am the light of the world. And in our gospel text, he's saying, uh, you need to shine like a lamp, on a lampstand or like a city, a lit up city in the hill. So if we can imagine ourselves traveling through the, the Middle East and it's dark and maybe we're in the, the northern part where, where Jesus ministered mainly, you know, in Galilee, and it's very hilly and the cities are built, so it's kind of, the territory is a lot like how it is in various parts of Italy. There's these very beautiful hills and cities are built on the hills. And when it's at uh, when it's dark, when it's at nighttime, as you're coming around the bend, you you can't miss a hill. That's a city that's on a hill because in the dark it's all lit up. So you got all of these lights in the darkness. Okay, so we're to shine. Saint Paul says another passage in the Bible. He says that we are to shine like stars in a, in this dark firmament. Okay, so uh, I'm going to share with you a story uh, that involves a lot of darkness but also light, and it's a, a great way to kind of talk about Public Policy Weekend and uh, our vocation as Catholic Christians to shine like lights in the world. Go back to 1994, and I think many of us probably remember this incident. It's the Rwandan, Rwandan genocide that took place in 1994. And uh, it's one of the, it's probably the most, as far as intensity, probably the most uh, terrible instances of genocide that's ever taken place, that we know, at least in recorded history, we got, we got numbers for. 800,000 people were killed in, over the space of three months. Okay, So we know the Nazi Holocaust, we know what Stalin did uh, to the people in the countryside in his days, but they took, some, they took years to do what they did with the millions of people that they killed. Whereas in this instance, it was almost a million people who were killed over the space of just about 90 days. And uh, there was a woman who lived to tell. She lived through it. 70% of her people were killed. It was the Hutu tribe versus the Tutsi. The Tutsi were the minority group. And uh, there's a woman by Immaculate. Uh, her last name is a little challenging here. Let's see if I can get it. Uh, Ilibagiza. Okay, Immaculate Ilibagiza. Uh, and she's actually coming to our diocese. She's going to be speaking next month at a women's conference. And so I encourage you to kind of look back in the advertisements and the different cards that are you'll find in the entranceway if you want to learn more about that. Her, her story is absolutely remarkable. But she lived through this horrible uh, time. And uh, she came from a very devout Catholic. Uh, the Catholicism is the majority religion in Rwanda, which makes it all the worse because it was Catholics killing Catholics, essentially. This is what was happening here with this genocide. And they were doing it. They let their ethnicity, their tribal ethnicity, become more important than their, uh, than their religious identity, and they were able to kill uh, their, their Christian brothers and sisters really, really in a horrible way. Well, um, uh, Immaculate's father uh, was the, like a regional coordinator of Catholic schools, and uh, he was a very good man. And... Um, one of the things that Immaculate reflects on, she says that it was really because her father had an open heart and was very much open to his neighbor and not prejudiced at all, is that ultimately saved her life. Because 
Um, her father was friendly with everybody, with the Hutus as well as the, their own tribe, the Tutsis. And so he befriended this one guy who was actually an Episcopalian priest. He befriended him, and he got to know him enough to know that he could trust this guy. And so he actually sent his daughter, he sent Immaculate with him to be sheltered, to take, you know, to, find, to hide out, basically, uh, with him while all of the, the, the killing was going on. And there's many other really nice reflections that Makulay has uh, about her father as a very brave man, a very good man. Um, one of the last things he did, uh, the last time that they saw each other, is he gave her his rosary. And uh, so she had that with her when she escaped to this other guy's house. And uh, so she comes into the house and she's hidden along with six other women in a small bathroom that was three feet by four feet. So can you imagine packing six people into a three feet by four feet space? And uh, they were there for days. And they're like, okay, I think is this we had <laughs> enough of this. And then days turned into a week. And then a week turned into more weeks and then a month. And they were actually in that cramped space for the entirety of this whole atrocity. 91 days they were packed into this small space. And the guy who was harboring them, he couldn't cook extra food and give them extra food, so he gave them table scraps. Because if his children knew that he was harboring these people, the word would have gotten out and they would have been dead. Even if his children, so his children would have, maybe not in a really malicious way, but kind of incidentally would have probably mentioned that, you know, there's these Tutsis hanging out in our bathroom. There were these, uh, the, the, the Hutu um, atrocity against the Tutsis were so, was so terrible that, it was, first of all, it was, it was sponsored by the government. Uh, the militias were involved, but it was more than that. It was radio broadcasts every day, 24-7, talking about the Tutsi as serpents and snakes. And, uh, you know, a baby of a snake is still a snake. Kill the babies as well. So they would they were killing the elderly. They were killing the... Uh, babies, and um, it was next-door neighbors killing next-door neighbors, people who had lived apart from each other and maybe had each other over for dinner every once in a while, went to school together. It was next-door neighbors killing next-door neighbors, literally. So there's these bands of hundreds of these Hutu men who would get themselves psyched up on alcohol and drugs, and they just go through and do these killing sprees with machetes. And uh, twice it happened that this guy's house was raided by the, these bands. There were hundreds of guys that came into the house. They were looking in suitcases just to see if there were Tutsi babies in the suitcases, which they would have killed if they found. So they were looking everywhere. Miraculously, they didn't open this bathroom door. It was kind of hidden away sort of in a corner, and they didn't open it. And how they could oversee that, there's kind of these, there's a lot to it, and it's a very interesting and, and miraculous story, but I can't really focus on that. There's just so much to this story. The one thing, though, I'll focus on is the fact that the man placed his radio outside the door of the bathroom so the ladies could hear, kind of keep, keep abreast as to what was going on. The BBC was the only radio station that was actually telling the truth. Everything else was propaganda in the local radio stations. And uh, I'm not exactly sure, maybe I'm not going to blame the other countries or, or America or European countries. I don't know what was going on, but no one did anything. Okay, So they just let this genocide take place, and I'm not exactly sure why, but that's what happened. 
So they were really helpless in all of this. And um, uh, she, through the other side of the door, learned of the death of her family members. Okay, so she had uh, two of her three brothers were killed, both her parents were killed, and her grandparents were killed. And so the only thing that she could do uh, uh, so as to not lose her mind was to pray the rosary. And she prayed the rosary upwards of 27 times a day, meditated on the mysteries of the rosary, and it was the only thing she said. If she, as soon as she stopped praying the rosary, all of these this incredible rage and anger and all of these uh, dark thoughts would enter her mind. She would just be going insane with anger. Um, and so she, she couldn't stop praying. Otherwise, she would have been, she'd gone nuts. And at some point, she realized when she was praying the Our Father over and over again, forgive us our sins as we, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, she couldn't do it. She, she couldn't forgive the people who were killing her, her tribe and, and her family. And uh, so she actually stopped praying that part of the Our Father. And then, as she was meditating on the mystery of Christ's crucifixion, she heard Christ say from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And uh, that brought her to a point where she could actually give forgiveness to the, to the tribe that was killing her people and that had killed her family. And uh, so then she started to say, well, Christ taught us the words of this prayer. I have to pray. So she started to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us from the heart, really meaning it. And after she got out of this ordeal, uh, you know, after the 91 days confined in this space, sleeping, standing up and laying on each other, and they had a to- one toilet and they'd have to move just, you know, and they couldn't make a noise and they couldn't flush the toilet unless they heard someone on the other side of the wall because there was a second bathroom. As soon as they flushed the toilet, they could flush the toilet. They, they, they couldn't make a noise because the kids would hear. Um, but in any event, when she got out of there, she was 65 pounds. And uh, she's a very, uh, a very lovely, very beautiful woman um, uh, to this day. Uh, but she, I can bet she wasn't looking too pretty after being 65 pounds and 91 days in that confined space. She must have looked like death warmed over. So she took a long time to recover from this incident. She found refuge in a a French refugee camp. Eventually she started working for the United Nations, helping to kind of mitigate some of the problems in Rwanda, which persists to this day. To this day, Rwanda is a complete mess, economically, socially, culturally, everything. It's just trauma. Uh, is still there. The people who perpetrated the, the murders, they, they're very ashamed of themselves, quite frankly. And they, you know, there's lots of suicide rates. Um, when she got out uh, of her period of recovery, she actually went to the prison where one of the men who had killed the majority of her family members was. And she personally, <laughs> she personally bestowed, forgave him. I forgive you for killing, uh, my my family, and you know what? This guy has actually a hard time like looking at himself in the mirror. He he can't even really receive the consequences of sin is, is so severe. Sometimes people feel so condemned that they can't even receive forgiveness. So this guy to this day, he's not he he, he doesn't feel forgiven. Okay, let's just say that, and he really can't even look um, her in the face or really anybody else. Um, so we see a lot of darkness, my brothers and sisters, in this incident. And uh, unfortunately, these were Catholics that were doing this. And even clergy participated in this. Okay, uh, It was a really, really horrible event. And uh, 
we see in our in our readings, you know, in our first reading from Isaiah, it says, if you bestow your bread upon the hungry, if you stop your malicious speech and the pointing of your finger, then your light will arise in darkness. So this light shining in the darkness that we, we sing about and that we hear about in our scriptures today depends on us. We have it in our power to be light in darkness. Christ is challenging us. He says if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? It's just throw it out. Okay? We can lose that saltiness. All right? It's up to us. Christ is challenging us to be light of the world. We can be like, unfortunately, the majority of Catholics who, who you know, perpetrated this atrocity in Rwanda. Or we can be like uh, Immaculate's father, who had an open heart towards someone of the other tribe, who actually, you know, ended up saving his own daughter by, by being that way. We could be like Immaculate and extend forgiveness to those uh, who hate us and hurt us and do terrible things to us. Um, we can do it. And uh, we can do it because Christ, as we hear in our gospel acclamation, is the light of the world. It's Christ shining in us that enables us to be a city set on a hill and stars shining in the darkness. And we are shining. We are shining. I was just looking at uh, statistics the other day on the Internet for Catholic charities. The Catholic Church is the largest charitable organization on the face of the planet, bar none, no doubt about it. If you just take the, the, the first five or six largest Charitable organizations within the Catholic Church, uh, Catholic Charities, um, let's see here, i got them written down here, Food for the Poor, Catholic Relief Services, America's Second Harvest, St. Jude's Hospital, so forth and so on. We're talking $5 billion are given annually uh, in charitable services. That's just, that's just a handful of Catholic Charities. We're talking there's thousands of Catholic Charities all over the world. And uh, we're not even talking about religious orders that are completely dedicated to taking care of the poor, people who have been displaced, immigrants, refugees, so forth and so on. Um, we are shining. And we have, at the local level, our parish, we have our, uh, we, we need to thank our brothers and sisters who are involved in our uh, food pantry, in uh, Martha Ministry that ministers to, the, to those who are going through, who are breathing the loss of their loved ones. Uh, we have Carrying cards, carrying calls, ministry. We are shining, uh, but it's a challenge, and we can never uh, take it for granted that that this is our vocation, and it depends on us to be lights in the world. So, one concrete way we can continue to be lights here. You heard my homily on physician-assisted suicide two weeks ago. We have in our pews letters uh, to our uh, governor, our assemblyman, our, our senator, um, saying, "No, we don't want this." Uh, physician-assisted suicide to be legalized in New York. And so I encourage you, if you can read through that letter and agree to it, don't sign it if you don't agree with it, but if you agree to it, sign your name, put your address and your zip code, and our uh, Deacon Kylie is our regional justice and peace uh, coordinator for Catholic Charities. We're going to organize these letters, just place them back on, on the side of the pews. We're going to organize them by zip code, give them to Deacon Kylie. He's going to bring them. We're going to make three copies of them, give one uh, one pile to the governor, one to our senator, one to our assemblyman. And these letters are coming from all across the diocese, so there's going to be thousands of them, uh, God willing. And uh, I'll leave you with one beautiful image here uh, from, again, Rwanda here. When things were being rebuilt after the, the genocide, um, there was a Catholic church that had to be rebuilt, and the people put, you know, put their money and their effort into rebuilding this church. But they were still afraid to gather in the in the daytime. 
They gathered in the night. And there wasn't any electricity in the building, so they brought their own lamps. And so if you can imagine all the people going to Mass in the middle of the night, each individual one carrying their own lamp, but coming together and lighting up the entire church building. This is a great image for what we as Catholics are called to be. Each one of us individually taking responsibility to further justice and peace in the earth, but then all of us coming together to do it together so that together as church we can be the light of the world. 